0: Hi, I'm Stephen.
1: And I'm Alva.
0: And on this episode of the New States and Podcast, we discuss the horrific scenes in the United States. And you ask us, how influential have lockdown sceptics been on government decisions about lockdown? So, obviously the most significant event in global politics over the last however many hours have been the events in Washington, D.C., Obviously, we have another podcast, World Review, in which our international team discuss all of this stuff in greater detail, and they will do that tomorrow. But I thought, Albert, it would be a good idea for us to talk about it a bit, because it's obviously um, a huge event that the world over is talking about. You talked about how, in many ways, this was unsurprising in our free morning email morning call. Why was it unsurprising to you?
1: I suppose it didn't make it any less shocking And so in some ways, I I was very surprised and shocked and found it very surreal. But I think I sort of meant that more on the level of analysis or whatever, we shouldn't find it surprising. Or that's just my own take on it, that actually, I mean, it's a new development, but it's entirely in keeping with everything that we have seen from the Trump presidency from the very beginning, and it's a sort of just the, I mean, this is what Emily wrote in, in her dispatch from Washington last night. And so I kind of picked up on, on, on a similar theme that words do eventually become actions and that beyond what you say on Twitter or the comments that you make that are leaked about. And I mean, I was just thinking about the and by the pussy comment and his response to the events in Charlottesville This is all part of the same process, um, but eventually there is a real world violent manifestation of those words. So I think in that sense, it isn't surprising. It's the same thing. And I thought it was a kind of vindication of the way people like our US editor, Emily, have covered Trump the whole time. Because I think to call his kind of politics what it is and to be really unflinching in that, Rather than I think doing the kind of coverage that would be kind of tempting to sort of try to be terribly fair and to treat him as though he's sort of different or to in some ways kind of make apologies for it, is clearly not the right approach for this kind of politics or this kind of president. And I think, yeah, just the final developments of this violent insurrection at the Capitol, these people. Who, I don't know what you think Stephen but I think you know genuinely believe that they've had the election stolen from them I, mean, I genuinely believe the untruths that Donald Trump has been peddling by uh, seeing the way that this is the way the Trump presidency comes to an end I think just validates the way clear voices I mean even Sadiq Khan in London being exactly clear about what he thought of Donald Trump and making I think a completely valid Parallel with 20th century fascism, I think those are the kinds of voices that actually are really vindicated by this. That that was the correct approach to take all along. Watching the events unfold, Stephen, what were you thinking?
0: It didn't really surprise me that something like this would happen because, one, well, as you say, right, look like we all, right, presumably believe and trust the leaders and all parties we choose to support, right? I mean, like, to Mm. take, you know, a a completely parochial and and much more benign uh, example, right? If, like, our, our, unfortunately, our standing down head of, um, sort of, environment and other policies here in this borough said, actually, I've looked at it, and I think, to take something I think is self-evidently absurd, I think that actually opening a new coal mine in Cumbria might be a good thing. I'm not saying I would necessarily believe it, but I would at least think I would give it headspace, right? Because... I trust John Burke, our head of the environment. I think he has a good record, yada, yada, yada. Now, hopefully I would eventually look at it and probably then disregard it. But of course, right, if you have a situation in which someone you voted for, you know, your literal president, who you believe has been you know, a positive thing for your country, a positive thing for you, this seems like, like Donald Trump has essentially been saying there has been a coup in his country for however many weeks. So It is a rational and normal reaction for it to provoke a political violence, right? And one of the things I have never really understood about some people's reaction to the Trump era, right, is, like, of course, speeches and rhetoric have consequences. Otherwise, politicians wouldn't use them. It just kind of defies all all logic and sense to go, oh, well, you know, this won't have some form of, of reaction and con- consequence. I think the, the thing I found surprising was actually not so much about any anything that happened in terms of the capital invasion in terms of the action of the insurrectionists themselves the the reaction of political institutions as a whole was i thought the more significant thing right like we've we've seen in the last half many hours right the republican party suffered defeats in two senate elections and they possibly wouldn't have lost if they'd just run on a message of he is the president your vote counts we need to have divided government as a check on on Joe Biden, and indeed, we've seen now in two elections in which Donald Trump has has done worse, right, than other Republicans on the on the ballot, right, in essentially every every part of the United States. Right, both twenty sixteen and twenty twenty, the Republican Party did better than than Donald Trump in in the presidential election on the same elections in the same day. Even if you kind of like chuck out the the kind of more obvious outliers, right, like some bloke in Vermont who's. The, yeah, like he has completely different politics to the national party issues. Ignore people like that. Donald Trump still did did worse. And I think to me, the, the significant thing, yeah, to kind of pivot away from world reviews turf is what it says about the overall Republican Party that the majority of members of the House of Representatives voted against certifying the election results. Which means that the kind of the dream, I think, that a large number of people in the top of government in the United Kingdom, top of government in France, top of government in Germany, top of government across Europe and indeed across the democratic world has broadly been that, like, if you use the right words, Donald Trump will just kind of become Eisenhower or Reagan or, you know, whatever Republican politician you personally would think that your political interests were better served by by being across. And the other thing is basically like, oh, well, it will be fine because it will last four to eight years. And then at the end, a normal Democrat or a normal Republican will take over and, and it, it will all be fine. And we don't really need to ask any of the difficult and scary questions about what happens if the United States ceases to be a democracy? What happens if the United States becomes you know, deeply riven by political violence, internal conflict? dysfunction of the kind that we we saw in the handling of the pandemic. and uh, I think the thing that this reveals is that it's hard to see how that dysfunction goes away, both because of the constitutional pressures, the consequences, than, yeah, online disinformation. Yeah, I think there have been a lot of slightly ridiculous comparisons drawn between uh, the US and the UK over the last have many things I mean, you know, the former leader of the Welsh Conservatives being like, how can you condemn a violent mob when you ran on an election to stop Brexit. It's just, I mean, I say to someone who thought you know, there would be really difficult echoes and it would be a bad thing if, if Brexit didn't happen, right? And i said that on the podcast sort of the past and people can get annoyed and cancel their subscriptions over at all, all again but, like, the, if you can't tell the difference between those two things, <laughs> I can't help you. But yeah, are, are that to me it feels like it was the really, really worrying thing. Is What does it say about the direction of US politics in general, and also what does it say about the corrosive, well, I mean, not anything that surprising, but it is an indicator of the corrosive effects of disinformation spread freely online, particularly on Facebook, because of its its hugely influential status as a platform most people are on. And what does that mean for the long-term health of democracies? A country is ultimately a shared idea of a reality, and you can disagree about political direction, you can disagree about a variety of things. But political entities begin to fall apart when countries no longer have a commonly agreed set of facts and principles, of which the most important one for a variety of reasons are elections are A, fair and B, upheld. That is a problem in any country, but the knock on problems for everyone else are a lot greater when it's, you know, the United States.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that's. The thing that really struck me watching the, I turned on perhaps stupidly because then I couldn't sleep for most of the night, but I watched hours and hours and hours of the rolling coverage on CNN of the insurrection at the Capitol. And it was kind of a a weird but sort of helpful way of reflecting on, on the bigger themes that were driving that, just looking at all these people. I don't really know what, what CNN was doing with its cameras, but people did not seem to be aware of walking in front of some of the cameras outside. So you could get a really good look at people's faces and their expressions. All these people who'd come out to riot, basically, and be, you know, basically attempt to coup. It really kind of made me think, as you say, about the longer term direction of American politics and this chasm opening up between different kinds of people in the U.S., and as you say, as this chasm opens up, really the fact that that Americans, maybe this is overstating it, but that Americans don't really seem to have a shared story about their country anymore in some cases, that exactly like you were saying, that that's how, how nations work. It was making me think a lot about how it, it's not just internet disinformation, but I think the quite polarized media landscape in the US, that people don't get their information from the same places anymore. And it's so much worse there than it is here. But I think that maybe the direction of travel is the same. And there was a a widely praised report. The ITV's reporter in Washington sent an amazing report for the 10 o'clock news, which has been really widely praised and shared on social media. And it was really quite strikingly different to the CNN coverage because this reporter managed to go inside with the rioters and speak to them. So they had this really incredible footage inside the Capitol, but a lot more of the people there talking. And maybe there's a debate to be had about how helpful it is to actually give those people a platform or a voice. I think it is in that it It doesn't amplify those views any more than they've already been amplified by the president of the United States. And it actually gives you much more of an insight into what they were thinking. And even in like small ways, thanks to that footage that we can see that there's like a clear strain of Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism running through the thinking of a lot of those protesters through things that they were wearing and so on but the difference between that and the CNN reporting was that clearly CNN's calculation was that it was too dangerous basically to engage with the rioters that there's such a such a division between between Trump supporters and the kinds of people who watch CNN uh, and the people of CNN that like i think that CNN reporters would have been at genuine risk of harm Because, you know, they're the sort of the the, example of the, the quote unquote fake news media. But it meant that the cameras were sort of at a distance and quite removed from the people inside the Capitol themselves, sort of watching, but not really able to talk to them. And I just felt like that was really the chasm in U.S. political life and in the U.S. democracy, like playing out in real time that that news media CNN is not a platform for those people like they hate it its reporters are at risk from those people and if you can't get people on the same page of a newspaper or watching the same kind of news outlets like why why would you believe the same things like why why would you maintain a shared story of your democracy it's just something I'm it kind of brings me back to thinking about The much maligned BBC which I know we talk about quite a lot and you have very clear views on but I think that there you know even if it doesn't look like the BBC I think that there's such an obvious value in having news sources that are watched by lots and lots of different demographics and as we have a sort of more diversified media landscape I would just worry that it just means that people only Absorb the news and the and the media that they that they agree with, and that certain news outlets are only going to be telling people what they want to hear, and are not going to be telling people what the truth is anymore.
0: To my slight shame, a Conservative MP once said one of the reasons why they enjoy listening to this podcast is that they're like it's <laughs> the only they're like it's, it's like having George Osborne complaining about like the BBC's dominance again <laughs> so uh, I obviously don't resile from any of my views about the fact that like I, I don't for example understand why it is that we have a situation where we have a publicly funded organization and that hosts like awards for what yeah where senior journalists host awards for what they consider to be good writing on their blog now unlike everyone else who's Seems to have done discourse about this. I have to be honest, I haven't clicked on it. I don't know what that person has picked as their winners. And actually, I don't care. It should not be on the BBC's website. Like, I, I really don't care if, you know, all eight winners or whatever it is are pieces written by Stephen K. Bush, right? Like, that's <laughs> not what it's for. But I do think, in terms of a kind of health of our, our country and society, having a publicly run broadcaster that is consumed by, in some shape or form, whether it's, you know, on the BBC, on the, on the BBC television, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, on whatever it is that the Ute get their, their, their news from, is, is hugely valuable, useful and important. And indeed, one of the problems I think we have with the BBC's in its current form is that the reason why it's valuable is it's a systemically important institution in public and broadcast life the reason why it's often quite dangerous in a British context is it they act like they're the same size as ITV sometimes. Mm. They rush to tweet things out when they haven't been verified. They engage in this kind of same sort of like, let's you and me have a fight about this political issue kind of stuff, right? Like, you know, like they have large chunks of their current affairs coverage, which is kind of like, let's find some people who are shouting at each other on Twitter and, and get them on there when they have no particular... To actually take a a really good example of of what I would say one of the problems with the the BBC's approach, and I think is directly relevant to the scenes we saw, a couple of years ago on ITV, Ash Sarkar, who's obviously one of the kind of outriders of the previous Corbyn era and a kind of, you know, public commentator or intellectual or whatever adjective you want to use, said on ITV, I'm literally a communist. And this was picked up and discussed on the Today programme the day after. Now, Why? Liberal communism is not was not a position that anyone in the country had voted for. It was not a position that people were going to be asked to vote on in the twenty nineteen election. What was the value of being like, oh, let's have a discussion on our flagship current affairs broadcast listened to by seven million people, that is is essentially a kind of squall, um, partly on ITV GMB, but primarily a squall on Twitter. Other than to go let's inject that into even more of the electoral mainstream, and yeah we've seen that this year with the way they've handled anti-vax uh, sentiment where none of the lessons, as far as I can tell, the, the lessons they purport, and they will very loudly talk about how they have a- allegedly learned the lessons from their disastrous approach to MMR. But if you look at the what those lessons were and you look at their handling of it this year, it's hard to see how any of those lessons have been operationalized. You, we had one of the advocates for no lockdown policy who was on the day program again, not asked any questions about any of the things that they had got wrong and what that whether or not that changed their argument. Just again allowed to inject. Um, and also bear in mind, right, that is a position and is not held by the vast majority of, of British people, according to the polls, and is not represented by a single political party with seats in the House of Commons. You know, unarguably, right, there are. There are thousands of policy issues and do not get to make it into that slot. Why is this one in there? And all of those things are, I think, really concerning things about how the BBC operates today. But there is no path for the United Kingdom that allows us to avoid these dangerous and terrifying tides of misinformation, conspiracies being shared on Facebook that do not run through our existing hegemonic broadcaster. And run through it, remaining state funded. Although, I mean, I don't think the licence fee is a sustainable funding model. And in some ways, we kind of have the worst of all worlds now, right? Where like, we've had some questions about this this week, For you ask us about the, the new chairman. And in many ways, it's pretty typical of a BBC chairman appointment. We have a situation where the BBC's funding is decided too regularly by government for us to have a proper church and state divide between the government and the broadcaster. But it's also regressive. So you don't have the advantage of funding out of general taxation, which is then at least you could spend it you could fund it in a progressive manner. And we don't have the advantage that the broadcaster doesn't feel the cold hand of, of changes to its funding model at its throat pretty much all the time. And I think those are really important changes. But this does show that if you don't have a strong thing then everyone watches, everyone listens to, and yeah, I do think, you know, if I were Secretary of State for Culture, I think your central aim in terms of keeping the country not necessarily intact from a constitutional perspective, but intact from a politics being something which is conducted at the ballot box and not through violence, you have to have it as an aim. Then 60% of the country will continue to use it as their main news source and almost everyone will use it as their as you know one of their news sources.
1: I think it's actually right that in a discussion about an insurrection in Washington, D.C., We do end up coming back to these themes because I think it is just about information hygiene in the 21st century and how we can ensure truth in the media and on social media and have these conversations about what views are broadcast, which views aren't, what's platformed, what isn't, how those things are scrutinized in a helpful way. There are sort of separate political questions about what, Donald Trump's colleagues in the Republican Party have been doing and what politicians around the world have been doing or not doing over the past few years. But I think actually the, the, the question around information is the bigger one. It's a, it's a challenge for journalism as much as it is for, for anything else. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out
0: more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
1: And now it's time for a section we like to call...
0: You Ask Us.
1: So we've had a few questions on similar themes, so tying them all together, how influential do you think lockdown sceptics within the Conservative Party and outside in the media have been on the slowness to lockdown again?
0: So I actually think in terms of the speed of decisions taken by the government in England, from 20th of December to the 4th of January, right? The kind of, the points at which it, since past the point where it was obvious that there needed to be a lockdown, culminating in, you know, the kind of the sort of slow running, first we don't do Christmas, then we shun some more areas into Tier 4, then we shun some more areas into Tier 3, oh, surprise, we actually have to lock down completely. I actually think the answer is not at all, because... Yeah, the significant thing is is that actually, if you look at the most recent vote, only twelve Conservatives rebelled. Your average lockdown skeptic Conservative MP does understand that the position that they're in now is very different, both because of the vaccines, but also because of, of the more severe number of cases. Actually, I think the thing which has been significant at every point has not been so much the level of lockdown skepticism within the parliamentary party; it's been the desire of the Chancellor and parts of the, other parts of the government not to end up in a situation in which any of these crisis measures become permanent, which is why almost anything... It's obviously like the furlough, right? You're either furloughed or you're not, and it's very easy if you're a government for the furlough payment to simply die on the vine. Right? There is, to my mind, no realistic prospect of them not being able to go, that's the end of that chapter. Whereas things like the £20 uplift in universal credit going to be very hard to unpick. Things like going, oh, yeah, actually, it turns out that we are sort of, you know, food poverty doesn't stop being a problem for the six weeks of the summer holidays, right? That kind of thing is a lot more difficult to unpick. And broadly, because the longer this goes on, the more you end up having to do things that are slightly more precedent-breaking and kind of move the state in directions than one wouldn't necessarily like if you were a conservative. Then they just become more inclined to resist those things and at every point if you're boris johnson you just want to avoid upsetting anyone in the room or making um, making clear decisions and that means then at every point what happens is you eyeball it you eyeball it you eyeball it and then eventually all of the lights on the nhs dashboard slash, dashboard flash red and you have to act i think that that's, i think the character of boris johnson and those political imperatives will be much more important than anything that any backbenchers have done right if you Look at the point when the uh, lockdown sceptics became organised in Parliament. Actually, it weirdly coincided with the the ebbing of their influence because there was a vaccine breakthrough and there were a variety of alarming noises in the NHS. I I think where they have been more influential is actually in terms of the public understanding of it. Not so much because obviously most people are not lockdown sceptics, but it feels to me at least like we have a situation where a lot of our public health debate over coronavirus Has been designed, has has, you know, has become a a conversation between the twenty percent of people who are lockdown sceptic and their very loud representatives in parts of the right wing media, and someone who thinks lockdown, whether it's a necessary evil, whether yeah, but someone in the seventy percent, and those are those are the kind of the two points of the debate. We have never had a discussion about whether or not it is desirable or fair or equitable to uh, have a lockdown enforced where businesses are not compelled to have home working, and this has implications for whether or not schools may have to close right it, it, I think it, it has meant so I think it's meant we've had a, a much worse quality of conversation about how to do lockdown effectively I think it's one of the reasons why we've never really talked about the fact that we in common with everyone across Europe seems entirely averse to actually trying to do isolation, quarantine in a serious way. Mm. So yeah, that's my sense of how I'm pushing. What do you think?
1: It's funny because my instinctive answer was going to be quite a lot, actually, in terms of how much the debate inside and outside the Conservative Party, the debate around lockdowns and I think the growing feeling of lockdown scepticism that we saw last year, I think that it probably did have quite a big impact on our slowness to lock down. But I also think that you're completely right that it's not as though any particular Conservative MP I imagine, around the 22nd of December knew that the, those sage minutes were advising a full national lockdown and they were tapping Boris Johnson on the shoulder saying, you know, you can't do this because we wouldn't support it. I don't think that that was the case at all. I think it's it's just that sort of the inherent reluctance to lockdown is baked in for for Boris Johnson now that they don't need to say it or they've said it quite enough such that that is a a feeling at the very top of government that that is a position that Boris Johnson understands and I feel like if he was a backbencher would broadly support it's the view of a lot of people in cabinet as well so I suppose it's not that certain people have influenced people in government it's just that they are of the same view and Yes, I, I suppose it's just that my impression is that Boris Johnson's answer, which to me doesn't make much sense, but you can kind of see the thinking behind it. Clearly his, his response to the later stage of the pandemic has just been, oh, you know, we, we accept that lockdowns are bad. I don't think anyone disagrees on that, by the way. But, you know, we accept that lockdowns are bad. Therefore, our way of avoiding it is to do lockdowns, but not everywhere all at the same time. And therefore you talk about your tiered approach and it means that you're giving some people some more freedom some of the time. But because of the nature of exponential growth and because we haven't had other public health measures in place to contain the spread of the virus, eventually you end up locking down everywhere. And as you say, doing so much later at the point where the NHS is at the point of being completely overwhelmed where the care that people can be offered is of a much lower quality because of how stretched the health services and also you have far more deaths and a much more long-term harm from coronavirus in terms of long COVID and so on because you've allowed so much of it to spread. Clearly Boris Johnson's approach has been I accept a lockdown is bad therefore we have a tiered approach so we do lockdowns but a bit less and a bit late and then you end up doing it for much longer I think we just have had a very poor quality of public debate on this at risk of repeating myself because we talked a little bit about this last week I think really we could have had a very mature public debate in over the past few months where we agree that lockdowns come with so much human and economic harm that we wanted to avoid them but then we then we could have thought about how to avoid lockdowns, which, as you say, would probably have looked like paying people to isolate and isolate centrally, like, you know, you are taken to a hotel, and you stay there and people bring you meals, and you're given economic support to do so because ultimately, that is a benefit to everyone. If you're isolating and not spreading the virus, I think, you know, we could have had things like that thinking about the need for a proper test, trace and isolate system and really how you do that to avoid lockdowns rather than I think the way the debate was actually conducted where it was sort of like, you know, the people talking loudest about how bad lockdowns were seemed to think that they could get some sort of agreement that it just wouldn't happen again. Whereas it was inevitable it would happen again if we just had enough coronavirus in circulation because at a certain point the health service goes over capacity again, and you just have to lock down. I think that there was just a real failure to think that through. And it means that, you know, I think people making the case against lockdowns are making such a sensible point in some ways about how, how obviously bad it is to shut down large parts of the economy, and how bad it is for people's well being, and probably their long term health and well-being and happiness and educational development and everything to have to stay in your own home possibly without very much money for a very long stretch of time but like everyone is on the same page on that I think and you don't you don't just sort of wish away lockdowns by saying that and saying that until you're blue in the face you you do it by avoiding it the way we had that conversation about lockdowns lockdown skeptics within the conservative party and outside it, I think established a certain attitude towards lockdowns such that Boris Johnson felt that it was almost better to wait a little longer before doing the inevitable, even though that you know, comes with, with such great human cost that we kind of failed to make the case that if lockdowns are inevitable, you need to do them sooner for shorter rather than later and longer.
0: You've been listening to the New Statesman Podcast. It's produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is still Devil by the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. With me, Stephen Bush, who you can follow on at StephenKB.
1: And me, Alva Ray, who you can follow on Twitter at Alva.
0: And if you're enjoying the New Statesman Podcast, please tell a friend.